All right, welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast. And it's it's almost criminal that it's taken us into our into our episodes of our into the seventies before we've brought this featured guest to the airwaves. And the person I'm talking about is Dr. Bill Clark, a former professor at Iowa State University, one of the foremost experts on predation, specifically pheasant predation in the entire country. And and I owe all the credit to Jared Wickland, the co-host for this episode. He's like, you know, Bob, why, why haven't we had Dr. Clark on the podcast yet? <laughs> And uh, so today, today, we're going to talk about predators and their impact, specifically on pheasants, but we'll absolutely touch on quail. Uh, But Dr. Clark is an expert on pheasant predation, so we're going to spend a lot of time there. Um, And then how habitat, the mission of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, how habitat mitigates the impact of predators. Um, so it is an absolute thrill, Dr. Clark, to have you on the podcast. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, Jared Wickland, Jared uh, joining me as, as co-host again, frequent listeners of On The Wing podcast know Jared's voice, but during the COVID era, Jared's been on hiatus. I, I have double been. Se- double secret probation. Welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. I, I wish everybody could see my hair right now. Dr. Clark can. It's uh, it's it's quite the mess. It, it looks like a pheasant nest right now on top of my head. So I'm uh, well, fully integrating back into society. The, the the real news is not your haircut. The real news are the pink headphones you're wearing on your head that are that. I think your daughter's My Little Barbie headphones, correct? Yes, they are. They, uh, I, I, I stole, I stole these from a five-year-old to be first grader. So I apologize. She wasn't real happy with it, but uh, she went to Big Apple Bagels, so I didn't get uh, interrupted during this during this podcast. But uh, no, uh, Doctor Clark, we are really excited to have you. And your your uh, professional title is Professor Emeritus of Ecology, Evolution, and Organismal Biology at uh, Iowa State University. Uh, welcome to the podcast. And maybe you can give us a little a little background and kind of your connection to, to pheasants forever. And uh, you are a guy that, that, that likes to hunt our favorite bird as, as well as other species. So give us an update uh, a little bit on, on your profession and, and how you're involved at Iowa State, how you're involved with pheasants forever, and uh, some of the things that you like to do in your off time. Well, thanks for I guess you could say finally inviting me uh, to, to participate. Uh, I uh, I enjoy uh, interacting. As you know, I've talked to Pheasants Forever staff. In fact, the whole slew of people that worked with me at various times, uh, you know, uh, are are actually staff members that work with you guys at Pheasants Forever. I've been a longtime supporter of Pheasants Forever and and uh, other conservation organizations, Ducks Unlimited, Pheasants Forever, particularly. Um, so yeah, it's great to, uh, be with you. I've interacted a lot with people at, uh, especially, you know, Pheasant Fest for years. I used to come and talk about 
pheasant populations and so on during the special seminars and and that kind of stuff. In fact, I kind of miss it. I some of some of that's changed a bit because of the way pheasant, but the pheasant fest has changed. Uh, but I have always enjoyed doing that sort of thing. Um, and uh, with you know, with four let's say roughly four hundred employees that we have on staff. And what's the ballpark number of those employees that have been students of yours once once upon a time? Well, I can name I can name I can name three or four of them right off the top of my head. Rick Young, Aaron Keel, and Matt O'Connor all either were grad students or worked uh, directly for me uh, on projects uh, and so on. In fact, uh, Matt actually, uh, Matt and Aaron both worked on. Uh, Predators. Uh, Aaron worked on on nesting and looking at landscape use of, of predators uh, in northern Iowa. Matt O'Connor worked on the raccoon project years ago. Uh, so Ryan Heinegger is a long term. I mean, he was an undergraduate student here. Let's see. I'm trying to think who else was in. Our, oh, uh, uh, Eric Sitzma was an undergraduate at Iowa State that I remember. Holly Shutt yeah. was an undergraduate at Iowa State. So, <laughs> I don't know. So how many is that? That's right. There. That's at least five or what percent it is. you say? I don't know. I got 1% anyway. I'm easily paying 1% yeah. you know, of staff. I don't think we want to take the time to tell stories about some of these guys, but uh, there are... <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, some of those could be worth their weight in gold, oh, yeah. especially with their. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, tell us, tell us your background, where where you grew up, and how you ended up as a uh, as a professor, and why you ended up specializing in predators. So that's a long winded intro, but but start at the beginning for us. Well, so I'm a suburban kid from New Jersey, although I spent a lot of time in the woods with my dad and, you know, we hunted, uh, I, I, th I can remember as a kid, uh, the first thing I shot was a squirrel with a, uh, with a, uh, a 12 gauge shotgun that Dan Nair knocked me over, you know, uh, as a kid. So I used to hunt <laughs> squirrels and rabbits and, and pheasants in, uh, in New Jersey growing up in those days, you know, there's so small farms and that kind of stuff in a highly urbanized state now, course there were wild pheasants still you know back in the day uh, of course this is a long time ago let's see probably about 60 years ago something like that yeah. but i was traipsing around with my dad you know uh so and deer hunting and grouse hunting there were there were rough grouse in those places it's actually crazy to think that now there's probably more black bears in new jersey than there are pheasants at least wild pheasants uh you know wow. yeah it's it's kind of you know interesting but I spent a lot of time in outdoors and I, you could say sort of uh, knew from a very young age that uh, I wanted to be a biologist and I was interested in ecology and, and I was always fascinated with basically when sort of the general public asked me, you know, what got me interested in as a, as a scientist and what do you do? I tell people I just got interested in what makes animal populations go up and down. In fact, not just animals like pheasants and, and things like that, but, you know, all kinds of different species and even plants. My grad students used to joke that I probably published almost as many uh, papers on, on plants, even pollinators. You know, I've worked with colleagues on those kinds of things. That's not my primary area of expertise, but 
Um, it, it, it's the way I started and my interest in population dynamics is, goes all the way back to when I was an undergraduate and, and at Rutgers, I did my undergraduate work at Rutgers University in New Jersey. And then I went West and, and, uh, lived in, uh, Utah for, uh, about 10 years and did well, both my master's on snowshoe hare population dynamics. I mean, there's a classic, you know, ups and downs in predators and prey, especially the hares was sort of what I worked on for my master's. And then I did a, uh, I got into statistical estimation and all this kind of stuff. And the real nitty gritty of the mathematics of populations when I did work on, on how coyotes and jackrabbits interacted with one another and then how uh, jackrabbits interacted with the vegetation. And from an ecologist's perspective, it's sort of this question of what controls populations. And this is relevant to our, our big picture discussion here. Is the control on a population in the middle, that jackrabbit, from the top down, that is, do the coyotes control the numbers of predators? Or is it how much food and drought and various things influence the availability of food and the quality of habitat that pushes the population up from below, so to speak. And so, you know, that's an age old question. It's been around for as long as people have been interested in wildlife ecology. And that's what I kind of worked on for my, uh, you know, my PhD work. And then eventually I came to Iowa State and, um, and I taught courses in population ecology and undergraduate courses in in how to study populations and how to survey habitat and that kind of stuff, always kind of with a quantitative emphasis. That was always my uh, kind of, uh, you know, interest. And um, I helped to organize the very first uh, Ducks Un student Ducks Unlimited chapter uh, hmm. that was started in 1983 at Iowa State University uh, with uh, Heinegger was actually a duck guy in those days. He was one of the early uh, leaders. Yeah, of, he, uh, he worked. He worked for Ducks Unlimited, correct? That's right. And then eventually went to work for those. He was one of the. He was a pre, actually a chairman or president or whatever of our DU chapter at ISU. Uh, so, and then you know when I first came to Iowa State, you're always and as a new faculty member, uh, you're kind of searching around for how to get a research program started and so on. And I knew what my theme was. I was really interested in studying various kinds of dynamics of populations and that kind of thing. And uh, some of the earliest projects were uh, uh, actually on muskrats and wetlands. I worked on Mississippi River and so on. Uh, the uh, Iowa Department of Natural Resources was a big supporter of my research over the years. I have to really acknowledge that you know, organizations like the Iowa DNR really stepped up big. In fact, they funded a lot of the, and I still collaborate with those guys, you know, a year or so ago, uh, Scott Taylor and Todd Bogenschutz, who I worked with at, with the DNR, and I wrote a sort of a review paper for farm program influence on pheasant populations and that kind of stuff. Uh, I started out actually working modeling snow goose populations with a guy named Irv Kloss, who was a, a USGS uh, scientist of the co-op unit uh, back in those days with Fish and Wildlife Service. So we worked on dynamics of, of migration and snow geese and, and a wide variety of things. And of course, then that ends up sort of leading in a lot of different directions. Um, uh, eventually, when, you know, raccoon population, one of the earliest predator projects I did was with the DNR's uh, interest in whether 
you know, because in those days, pelt prices uh, of raccoons had gone to, you know, really high levels. And they wanted to know, well, are we going to wipe out, you know, raccoon populations in Iowa because their pelts are worth 30 or $35 a piece? Uh, the answer, of course, was no, you can't do it. I mean, you know, it just isn't, you know, just look <laughs> around you and figure that out. But at any rate, you know, uh, that was an important project. Uh, that's uh, I, I mentioned that, uh, you know, some of the people that some of the grad students that worked on that, Matt O'Connor was a technician on that project. Uh, and uh, how, and how was and, how was he to work with, by the way? O'Connor? Yeah. Well, um, let's see. What should I say? Uh, he was a very hard worker most of the time, except when when <laughs> he 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 uh, he wasn't distracted by hunting. Uh, you know, so yeah, there, there was. He, plenty he of says that. hello by the he says hello by the way. I, I was yeah. just on the phone with him before this uh, conversation yeah, started. Yeah, yep, yep. Well, you know, I, I think one of the things that uh, obviously it's very gratifying to be able to refer to these people and recognize that a lot of them. You know, as a professor, one of the things that's most satisfying to you is when you, you know, you give people professional start or stimulation of their commit. It's not just about the what they learn. It's, you know, who they meet and how they interact and stuff. And those folks had lots of interaction with agency folks and so on on these projects and eventually moved up the ladder and now are in positions of leadership, you know, all over the place. I have graduate students literally who are scattered all the way from Alaska to Florida and every place in between in various kinds of leadership, uh, you know, positions, which is very gratifying. Of course, it also means I'm old because now they're there, <laughs> you know, they've moved, they've moved up the ladder and, and that kind of stuff. So well, I was just, I could see how that would be an incredibly gratifying component of being a professor. Yeah. And you, I equate that, uh, you know, Bill, Far Bill Parcells, as an NFL head coach. And they right. talk about the right. kind of the coaching tree and, you know, Mike Zimmer becomes a coach and, and it, you know, this, you know, Bill Cower and sure. all these people sort of take the philosophy and put the spin on it, but they always recognize where they came from. And as a professor, you have a similar sort of, um, you, you said gratification, but also, you know, just that legacy of, you know, you've passed along, some not only knowledge but inspiration that has trickled throughout the wildlife community and you you know you you can be in retirement to know that uh, you've had a lasting impact on the landscape you know Bob it's actually interesting there are actually uh, there the influence is not just personal too it's actually scientific so there are there are actually uh, basically evolutionary trees of where ideas came from in ecology and wildlife ecology and so on. And you can trace the lineage of the, the students and their students and their students and so on uh, that, you know, in a tree and see how ideas actually develop that way. And they, they really do, you know, it's, it's important. They, the ideas change as, as they diverge um, and people contribute in different ways, but, the same thing really happens in the science and science yeah. never stands still. It never is static. And, and uh, it's one of the things that is hardest for the general public to see. It's relevant to our discussion today because oftentimes we have a tendency to sort of think about, well, you know, I wish it could just be like the old days or whatever. And, and people look for, you know, 
fairly simple uh, explanations. And if there's anything that my career taught me was, uh, you know, uh, there that's non-existent. Uh, no, there there is no simple answer. Everything's connected to everything else. And the other thing that I would say about the students and the people I worked with, when I first went to work at Iowa State, you know, every fact young buck faculty member comes out and thinks that, you know, they're going to light the world on fire and they're going to, you know, and they're grat and you're going to recruit nothing but the finest people and they're going to be the smartest people on the planet and they're going to do the greatest work. And I always joke with people, I tell young faculty this all the time, and I still do some mentoring of young faculty. And I, uh, I say, yeah, I used to think all that. And then I found out that graduate students were people. <laughs> and, it's, and it's really true. You know, they all have their strengths and weaknesses. You know, some are great writers. Some are great with, with uh, you know, the math uh, kinds of aspects, uh, the quantitative aspects. Some are great in the field. Some are better behind the computer screen. Uh, you know, or in the laboratory, you know, uh, actually my most recent, the last really major project that I had at Iowa State was working on, uh, um, we sort of skipped over the pheasant thing. We should probably come back to that. Uh, but, but, uh, uh, the last major project, which is still, I'm still writing papers on landscape genetics of, uh, bobcats. And there's another predator that I've worked on and, and that project went, it even, I mean, that's one of the great things about graduate students and, and colleagues, you you learn from them, you know. And uh, of course, I wasn't trained as formally as a geneticist, but I worked with some really smart people. And uh, my uh, graduate student, Dawn Redding, who's on the faculty at Luther College now, uh, is, uh, you know, and, and a colleague, Ann Bronikowski from Iowa State. And we worked together uh, really uh, on, on a project that basically changed at all kinds of things about what we know about the dispersal of predators on the landscape. And you could sort of say where predators, I mean, one of the things that we learned from this project is relevant to our discussion is, you know, how much more we have to think regionally about the dynamics of predators, whether it's how they disperse across the landscape and where, uh, you know, they're abundant and where they're not so abundant and uh, sort of where their cousins come from as they disperse. If you destroy habitat, you know, you just basically create vacuums and then, you know, individuals move in there. And so, you know, I had a, a lot of different kinds of projects over the year, years that led me in a lot of different directions and uh, hopefully contributed something to science. And I know that the greatest legacy of the science that you do as a faculty member is the scientists that you leave behind. create out of it and it's not to the papers all get you know somebody finds a better answer you know those just kind of change all the time but the people go on to a 35 year career and they produce people that go on for another 35 years and you're kind of going yeah well so that's the way the legacy <laughs> carries forward and to to that note i will say that um i i first met dr clark in 2010 when he came in and spoke to a packed room of people um, at the Iowa Pheasants Forever State Convention um, and gave gave one of his talks on predator dynamics. And um, I can easily say, you know, whether it's our volunteers um, or uh, the biologists that have trained under you at, at Iowa State and gone out to the landscape, um, your your delivery uh, in the in the PowerPoints that I've seen and just the 
our folks at Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever hold you in very high regard, very high regard, as do I uh, and our volunteers and anybody that's worked underneath you. So um, I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing some of that knowledge that we're going to talk talk about here today. It's my pleasure. So we, we, I definitely want to jump into the meat of this, but I have I want to circle back just for one other question. As you talk about the kind of the coaching tree of scientists, when you think about it from the other direction and who, what tree you fall from, I automatically intuitively think Iowa guy, Midwest predators, like he's got to be from the Aldo Leopold school of coaching. Is that accurate or is there a different father of predator prey management science that you kind of hold in, in really high re professional regard as you've gone through your career? So um, Leopold, uh, Leopold uh, obviously, uh, you know, predated me uh, by a long ways. The person at Iowa State that he influenced uh, uh, was his former student, Paul Arrington. And Arrington was also gone by the time I joined. But you could say that to some degree, although I I I, uh, uh, I wouldn't say that I agreed with Arrington, certainly I followed, you could say, in his footsteps, at least in terms of the faculty. Uh, I worked on muskrats and wetlands, and he was famous for muskrats and wetlands and, and mink populations and stuff like that. And so that's certainly one person that you could say in, in many respects. It's actually probably true for me that the people that influenced me the most were people that were either work because I started my research and interest in snowshoe hares. So it was people like Lloyd Keith from the University of Wisconsin-Madison who were working for a long, long time on predator-prey dynamics in, in the boreal forest, on lynx and snowshoe hares and all the associated predators. And then uh, got another guy named Charlie Krebs, who subsequently worked on snowshoe hares, but originally started on small mammals. Not so much the bird ecologist. I really am sort of, I started out as kind of more of a mammal guy, and I continued to work on predators and, and small mammals and lots of other things. Uh, the guy that probably influenced me the most in terms of bird populations was my colleague, Irv Kloss, Dr. Irwin Kloss, who was the co-op unit leader at Iowa State. He and I are the ones that started working together on um, uh, on uh, modeling snow goose populations. And so then the other group of people that influenced me, Bob, were the people that did the modeling. And so I worked with people at Utah State who my PhD advisor was a mathematician, an OR research guy. He didn't know anything about ecology. But boy, that guy knew how to do quantitative science. And I became a modeler because of people like that. So I think one of the other things that I would have to say is that in general terms, I tend to be, and this is something Jared will, will immediately recognize, having heard me say before, is that I tend not to, like a lot of the people, sort of think one-on-one, -on -one, okay, predator, prey, coyotes, foxes, or, you know, coyotes and pheasants, I tend to think really about the whole ecosystem and yep. sort of from top to bottom. And uh, that's a legacy of my training in Utah and the modeling and sort of hooking all this stuff together. And 
that I can't, I just, it's almost impossible for me to think about one dimension at a time. In fact, it gets kind of it gets kind of confusing in your personal life because you know everyday life. I I can't keep straight half the time. You know, I'm kind of going it's, in too many different directions. It's interesting to me when you mentioned Paul Paul Arrington. So you might be familiar with Paul Arrington Marsh outside of outside of Ankeny, Iowa, uh, kind of between right. the, the city yep. of Ankeny and south of Elkhart. Uh, yep, Ch- Chautauqua Bottoms is right near there yep. too. Yeah, um, my. The first wild pheasant I ever shot uh, in Iowa with a dog when I got uh, my dog Coda, a Labrador Retriever, in 2010 was at Paul Arrington Marsh. And it's the first place uh, that my new chapter down there and I did one of our first habitat projects. So I just find it interesting. You talk about degree of separation, you know, and I I guess I never I I never made that connection. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. So as we transition to the meat. And you you uh, you help the transition by talking about. Ideally, you would like to talk about landscape uh, right. predators, right. big time. But I'm gonna I, I, my simple mind is gonna go one at a time. Yeah, <laughs> right? that's fine. <laughs> but you can uh, you can tie them together because you know I, one of the things early on in the conversation you talked about the top down versus the bottom up role of of populations. Is it the predators top-down influencing pheasants or is it the bottom-up habitat uh, influencing um, a pheasant so what we're gonna we're gonna start with the top-down kind of species by species we're gonna you, I know you're gonna wrap us up to help answer that top-down bottom-up question as we as we get sure. towards the end but when, when I think about predation, um, and spe- specifically with pheasants, and I think about um, what pheasant hunters talk about at the end of the tailgate and what, um, what, what folks blame as public enemy number one for <laughs> pheasants, right? Yeah, I mean, they, there's even wanted posters in communities with this particular species. It's the coyote. Right. You know, right. Most people, if the, if you were to ask Joe Pheasant Hunter on the street, what predator is having the biggest impact on pheasant populations? Um, and, and they'll they'll say a lot of people will even say just period. The biggest influence on pheasant populations, period. People will point to coyotes as public enemy number one. Help us answer. Is that true or false? Uh, what uh, What's the role that coyotes play in pheasant predation? Well, so the first thing to remember is that if you're going to be a scientist and think about it, you do have to have all of the pieces. So that means you really have to study the effects of coyotes. What do coyotes actually eat? Uh, where do they go? How do they use the landscape and all this kind of stuff? So it's not... Um, you, you can't, in fact, there's not usually enough money to go out there and study a predator community. There are some great studies, and those are the ones that I mentioned before, where there are people have gone out and studied many, many predators all at one time uh, in relation to prey. But the, to start with, you have to start out with, the, you know, okay, what do coyotes eat and how do they behave and what's their kind of basic, you know, sort of uh, uh, lifestyle and uh, and how much 
you know, what's the actual evidence that they, you know, destroy nests and eat pheasant hens and uh, catch, uh, or in my case, uh, ducks. We were working more with ducks and predators than we were with nesting pheasants and predators. We'll come back to some of those interesting things. So I think one of the things that's true, Bob, is that right now coyotes are perceived as public entity number one by the average, uh, you know, sportsman and hunter and so on. Because they are ubiquitous. You see them all the time. They're relatively evident. They're re- people hear them, you know, much more. They're much more vocal. So at the times when they're having, you know, mating or when they're uh, having pups and stuff like that, and the or the pups are maturing, especially in late summer, early fall, you start hearing them all the time, you know, and that kind of stuff. And so we know they're out there. And it's interesting that part of what's happened is the actual uh, – interest in coyote hunting and coyote trapping has just exploded in the last, it's even in the last four or five years. And that's driven by not just their abundance. In fact, it's true that they're, it's not because they're more abundant now than they were, or that people are thinking, well, if we kill all these coyotes, we're going to have more game birds. No, it's actually driven by the fact that the international fur market is one of the few things that's still worth money. Um, Fur markets have just collapsed. But because there's still interest in fur uh, uh, collars and, and sleeves and linings of, of uh, coats, um, coyote fur is still worth some money. In fact, it's actually gone up relative to what it was, say, six, eight, you know, 10 years ago. And there's a ton of interest. And frankly, I think a lot of hunters like, well, I, you know, I want to get out there and go hunting for something. And uh, I'm going to become a coyote hunter. And so there's a lot of perception that they're very abundant and so on. Well, of course, they also know that coyotes eat prey. And so they figure, okay, I see lots of coyotes and I don't see as many pheasants in my, uh, you know, my favorite covers. And so they must be eating all the coyotes. Well, I mean, the all the pheasants. Well, so here's what coyotes eat. The number one thing they eat is rabbits. The second most abundant thing they eat is mice. The third most abundant thing they eat are things like ground squirrels. They're great at digging up ground squirrels and gophers and stuff like that. Almost all the canid predators, the we'll talk about red foxes in a little bit. They are really, uh, really designed, and that's even more true of bobcats. I mean, they are strict predators on, and they're sort of tied to bunnies and even closer. But the Basically, they're they're really focused on mammalian prey much more than they are birds. Uh, coyotes do not; they are um, actively um, there when they hunt. They tend not to they they use edges and things like that. And if you think about the way a coyote actually detects prey, they certainly have good noses and so on. But they're not like your pointing dog. A red fox is much more like your pointing dog in that. Those guys tend to actually use the wind and stalk their prey and sneak up on it, just like your pointer would say, okay, only in the case of your pointer, you're hoping it stops before it gets to that, uh, that, that, that pheasant. And, and in the case of the red fox, he wants to get as close as he can. But a coyote is actually trying to flush that rabbit because they are actually much more designed for coursing. You know, that is, they, they actually chase their prey. They flush them and catch them fast. 
And so coyotes, I've seen it happen many times. I worked on coyotes and jackrabbits in the Utah deserts. And you'd see them kind of sneaking through the sagebrush, using the wind and all that kind of stuff. And when a jackrabbit or a, or a cottontail would break, boy, they were on them just like that. <laughs> that's how they hunt. And that's very different than sneaking mm-hmm. up on a pheasant hen. Now, of course, the other thing in terms of sort of catching pred, uh, uh, is that in the wintertime, uh, they they certainly are trying to catch, you know, congregated pheasants and things like that uh, in the plum thickets and the, all those kinds of things. <clears throat> but most of the time, they're hunting the edges of the grass and stuff like that for mice. So they just like foxes and so on. They're really focused on those mammal prey. And they're also opportunistic. They eat a lot of carrion, um, coyotes more so than others. Frankly, uh, one of the worst uh, things about um, uh, or that influences coyote predation uh, and abundance of coyotes uh, in places like North Dakota and South Dakota, where there's still a lot of livestock, is there's a lot of ca- of uh, calves and uh, and carcasses out there on the landscape, uh, and those guys are big time scavengers. They're they're more so than than uh, say. Well, way more than bobcats, and even more so than red foxes and stuff like that. I, I, I can really, I can really attest to that because I live next to a, about a thousand acre dairy farm, um, and they've got they've got a lot of calves over there. And in, in the winter, especially, um, I I see coyotes all the time, and they aren't they aren't in my they aren't in my food plots bothering pheasants. They you know they're not really in the cattail sloughs out front. They're they're walking the edge of the fence line, uh, fence lines right next to right next to the cattle pastures that are across the field from my house. I see them all right. the time. Right, yeah. exactly. So, um, in terms of uh, you know the the take home point here is that they're not really bird predators by nature, although they certainly kill anything that they can catch. That's there's no doubt about it. They are abundant. That's true. Um, they tend the other thing about coyotes is. They don't like us for sure because they get shot at. Now, of course, they're, they also live in downtown Chicago. So, you know, mm-hmm. we could talk for a long time about the ecology of coyotes across their spectrum of, you know, whether they live in downtown Chicago. But if you take the Dakotas someplace or northern Iowa or whatever, the coyotes around here, for example. Now, there's not a stitch of grass where I live. I mean, you know, well, road ditches and things like that. It's corn and soybean country. And we have coyotes right in the middle of those big blocks of corn and soybeans. They catch mice in the cracks in the soil and along the little bits of of grass uh, and that kind of stuff. And they like basically to be in the middle of a section away from any disturbance. They'll even find places to den along those fence lines and stuff like that and have their pups in even intensive agricultural areas. Um, They're not necessarily restricted to... um, you might say big blocks of grassland. Now in the Dakotas where the uh, rangeland stuff like that, those guys have that kind of habitat available and they want to stay away from human disturbance and disturbance uh, of others. And that that's one of the most important things about their landscape use and the way in which they use the landscape. They cover big, they're bigger predators than say red fox. You know, in a, in a given night, our our radioed uh, red foxes in in North Dakota, um, those guys would travel, uh, you know, four or five miles looking for 
uh, prey and things to hunt. And coyote can sort of expand that by easily a factor of two. So they cover really large amounts of area. Now, if you just think about it and think, okay, is that the strategy of the best way to catch a pheasant? No. What they're really trying to do is just kind of wander across large amounts of landscape and they're going to find, they're going to kick up the jackrabbits and, and, uh, and, and cottontails that way. They're going to find patches where there's, you know, good scent for mice and things like that. And they're going to find the odd, you know, uh, deer fawn. And they're certainly at some point going to stumble across uh, birds uh, like, like uh, uh, you know, pheasants on a nest and stuff like that. So they're certainly going to, you know, occasionally catch them. Um, to bring back to what you were asking about, so, and, and reacting to what I said, I'm always thinking about, okay, so who else is out there on the landscape, right? And I'm always thinking about, okay, I know a lot about individual coyotes and how they behave. But you can see my brain just can't go to a place where I said the word red fox about four times in this discussion yes. about coyotes. So I'm always thinking, well, who else is out there? And in North Dakota, when we put radios on red fox and skunks and we had surveys, we didn't actually radio coyotes, but we had surveys to detect where the coyotes were actually located. And we mapped all this stuff out. The red foxes avoided where the coyotes were. And so what's happening is it, it influences the way in which the, the predators, all these predators and coyotes specifically, since we're talking about them, overlay with the prey that's out there, whether it's a duck nest or a pheasant nest or whatever. So now you got to flip the coin over and say, okay, well, where do the pheasants want a nest? And then where do the predators hunt? And then you ask the question, okay, so how do whatever your next predator is on the list uh, that you want to talk about, you know, and then you start sure. to pair all these things together before you can draw the conclusion. Okay. So who's, who's public enemy number one, yeah, right. you, can sort of say, you can sort of say in some ways they're all collectively public enemy number one, right. although we can do a lot to mitigate it with habitat and all that kind of stuff, but you can't point at one and you, you can't say, you know, I mean, it's easy I, I responded to Jared when he sent me some of the things we were going to talk about. And I said, you know, it's easy to look for the quick fix. And this has been going on since day one. Even Leopold, you know, the famous, uh, you know, work with deer and wolves and mountain lions that he did when he was in Arizona or in New Mexico uh, and, and, and the famous green fire line uh, in his, in the in the uh, San County Almanac about you know how he began to change the way he thought because he went down there and was told we want to have more deer and less predators less wolves and if we have less wolves we'll have more deer well that sounds good but it turns out not to be true it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't really work and furthermore I think it's really important. And it's especially important for members of Pheasants Forever, a conservation organization that stands for, you know, habitat and the quality of the landscape and agricultural diversity and stuff like that, to appreciate the diversity of, of the entire population or a community of predators and prey that's out there. What we really want is intact landscapes, uh, productive landscapes that will produce, you know, livelihoods for people 
and pheasants to shoot. And for that matter, coyotes to shoot too, you know, to enjoy, you know, that's, it's kind of a complicated way to think about this simple question of, you know, are coyotes public enemy number one, but I wouldn't put them as number one. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of things that kill prey, including pheasants. Right. So, so we know where we're going to end up with the conclusion that the answer is going to be habitat. The secret's out on that. Right. Right. But I do want to keep talking a little bit more about layers of different predators because I believe that it helps explain kind of everything's role both independently and intermingled by understanding. And you've talked about red fox a couple of times. And I want to I want to go to Red Fox a little bit deeper because one thing that and I don't know if I've heard it through a presentation from you or if I've read this, but um, I want you to you know debunk or explain this a little bit. So, as I understand, as you've explained, coyotes, although they're perceived as public enemy number one, their focal point is more on fur, right? They're not they're not focused on on feathers particularly pheasants. They're opportunistic, but they're not focused on Red fox are a much more effective predator of pheasants than the coyotes. And you you also talked about... Ducks and... You also talked about coyotes. Uh, When coyotes are present, fox really don't want to be around coyotes. Right. So if somebody is trying to influence pheasant populations by eliminating coyotes from their property, it's conceivable that they're actually doing a disservice from the predator-prey relationship by eliminating the coyotes because they're sort of welcoming red fox into that property which are a more effective predator of pheasants. Is that a true scenario? It is. The original work on this idea of the interaction between red fox and coyotes and was done on waterfowl nesting and, and nest success on waterfowl. But there's been similar kinds of work done on pheasants and so on. And, and, in, and actually in some of the same places. Um, and there's some ongoing work, particularly right now going on in South Dakota. But the basic idea is that because red fox are their populations are suspect, suppressed because of competition with red fox and red foxes can be kits and so on are often killed by coyotes so red foxes tend to push out and we have maps that it published maps in the literature uh, from stuff that we wrote that show here's here's a coyote home range you know in a big block of habitat a grassland or whatever it happens to be and so on. And the coyotes got this home range, a pair of coyotes got this home range. And if you put all those and layer all those out on a map, what you'll find is that the red foxes sort of squeeze in between where the, uh, the coyote uh, home ranges don't overlap with uh, each other. So they're sort of pushed hmm. off to the edges. Well, if you take all the coyotes out, the red foxes spread out more easily. They change the shape and size of their home ranges. And now the fox pair is hunting in habitat, the grassland habitats that, you know, uh, the coyotes might sort of be supreme in uh, most of the time. And now they're hunting in, in places where ground nesting birds 
like upland nesting, you know, ducks or upland nesting, you know, uh, uh, sharp, sharp tails or, or, uh, or pheasants or whatever, or in the South, um, the, the predator suite down there is a little different. We have at least two kinds of foxes to think about gray fox and, and red fox more. There are gray fox in the Northern Great Plains too. But when we start to think about the places where I've done research, we're talking about coyotes and red fox interaction. So it changes the way in which those, those red fox actually use the landscape and therefore how frequently, and we actually mapped out, we took radio telemetry locations uh, back in the day, we didn't do it with satellites, but uh, we did it literally by XY triangulation from simultaneously from vehicles and stuff like that. And the path of uh, Red Fox, uh, you know, traveling. And we have maps that just show if you have lots and lots of grassland, the Red Fox kind of wanders all over that, that landscape. If you have uh, you know, a few patches of habitat. So you imagine that up there, it's mostly small grain agriculture. And now you have some CRP fields or you have some hay ground or whatever. So small perennial habitat patches or medium sized patches. And of course, the red fox get up, gets up in the, in the evening out of his den and says, okay, where am I going to look for, you know, mice and stuff like that, right? Just like that, you know, right immediately to one of those sort of patches and starts hunting. So they just sort of use, but so you can imagine that if you, you know, head to a 40 acre field, you're a red fox, you can pretty much cover that 40 acre field pretty systematically. And anybody who's in there, especially if there's a nesting duck or a nesting pheasant, and because they have good noses and they can scent those and they're very stealthy predators, they're sort of a different style, you know, predator than the, the coyotes. They sneak up on them and very frequently catch the hen, especially duck hens, uh, pheasant hens. Pheasant hens are really good at sitting tight. Ducks, not so not, not so good. And, and as a result, they get a little more nervous. And I think that they're more readily detectable. Um, but, but at any rate, uh, pheasant uh, or duck, you know, hens get caught um, much more frequently on the nest than coyote does. And of course, the other predator that we're the, the other predators in this landscape that we're talking about, because you asked the original question about the presence of coyotes. So we get rid of those, and now we have all the egg predator populations that are not, you know, they're using the habitat willy-nilly. And their density is 10 times the density of coyotes and, and red fox. Uh, is it really? So, oh yeah, you know, four, uh, uh, 10 might be the high end, Jared. It can be four or five times the density. Raccoons, uh, you know, density in North Dakota is pretty sparse, but in Iowa, you know, in any place around any, you know, patch of habitat or even South Dakota, Eastern South Dakota, I mean, there's, there's you know, raccoons all over the place and, and nothing eats skunks except great horned owls, you know. Uh, and stupid dogs that try to, you know, you know, so great, so great owls eat skunks. Yeah, I mean, they'll eat anything because they can't smell, you know, I mean, they don't care about the smell. Uh, but, uh, but, that's but the, the point that's is the fact that, of the day right there. Yeah, I didn't know that. Well, so, so basically, you know, the point we're back, let's get back to where we started here. So, you, you change the, the rest of the predators, you asked the question about what happens if you take all the coyotes out. 
you change the dynamic of all these other predators and the two uh, or three most important things you change are the two egg predators. If I had to say, what's public enemy number one? What has the biggest influence on pheasant productivity? Now, specifically on nesting, I would say the skunks and raccoons together. Um, you know, they are big egg, pre egg predators. They don't really hunt eggs. Like they're not out necessarily searching. They're mostly searching for invertebrates and small vertebrate prey like snakes and, and especially things like frogs and so on. You know, they love that kind of stuff. And earthworms. I mean, they just, they go right along the edges of the puddles in the edge of some field and you you just watch and look for tracks. You're going to see skunk and, and, and raccoon uh, tracks in every little muddy spot along the edge of a field, right? So... They're out there looking for that stuff and they get in the edges of the grass and the pheasant nest is there. They smell the nest. They usually don't catch the hen. They The hen's too, you know, she'll flush out of there. They might catch up to a pheasant hen or a duck hen sometimes, and they certainly do occasionally. But then they, you know, they just, oh, that's it. You know, you're, you're a skunk and you're walking along looking for beetles. They, you know, they're black and white and stink. So they don't get bothered by coyotes and foxes or any of those other kinds of things. That's why I said that, you know, great horned owls don't care. You know, they just swoop down yeah. and grab them, right? You know, but they're walking along and they've got their nose right to the ground. You just watch them. You've seen them in the woods occasionally or out in the field. And you see them and they're, they're paying no attention to anything else. But they can smell a grub 10 inches under the ground. Okay. So they are going along just looking for that. And all of a sudden... They bump into, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a pheasant nest. You know, they sent that nest, they find the eggs, and they're going, oh, my goodness, that's it. I just hit the mother load. I was telling Jared earlier that uh, we had one of, our radio, <laughs> one of our radioed skunks that we found literally asleep in the grass next to a partially uh, destroyed <clears throat> duck nest. Um, and we had radios on ducks too. So we were studying both at the same time. We weren't able to do that on pheasants. We actually could do it on ducks as it turned out just because of differences in funding and stuff. Anyway, we find this, uh, uh, we find this skunk just literally sort of lounging out in the grass, basically asleep. His belly was swollen, about half the <laughs> eggs in the nest were gone, you know, inside that skunk. It was just like, ah you know, laying there uh, on its back and it was just waiting until he digested those. And then he was just going to roll over and eat the rest of the eggs. You know? <laughs> that's, that's the, that's the, tip, that's the typical, uh, you know, you, you saving that for later, bud, uh, type of <laughs> type of response for a skunk. And it's, it's funny though, because, um, you know, as the, as the PR manager, public relations manager for pheasants forever and quail forever, um, you, you'd be surprised at how many, emails I get related to predators and, you know, what are we doing? What are we doing for coyotes? And, right. and I always, right. br I always bring up to the point to people that, you know, especially in the, especially in the spring, when these, when these birds are on nests, you know, you, you know, might, might a coyote take in a, an occasional, um, an occasional adult pheasant once in a while. Sure. sure. Yeah. If they run into them, sure. It's, it's, that happens. It's, it's nature. Right. But right. Um, when you look at, when you look at skunks and coons, um, and going along, whether it's linear habitat or block habitat, and, and that'll probably be the next thing we get into to, to talk about uh, what what um, influences that. 
um, you know, I, I, I bring it up to him is that when, when you're taking out an entire nest full of eggs in the next generation, um, you know, and you're, you're forcing that hen, if they go off and re-nest and you're dropping the egg count already there, that that's really what's doing a number, uh, on your, on your upland bird populations, um, on, on any given piece of habitat. Right. I think the important point here is that if you think about the three predators we were talking about after we talked about coyotes, red fox, which actively hunt ground nesting, you know, whether you're talking about, you know, uh, uh, pheasants or ducks, uh, they actively hunt hens during the nesting season and they, and they obviously hunt eggs. And actually one of the interesting things about red foxes, uh, they cache the eggs too. So they pick them up in their, uh, in their mouth. I, we have pictures of one day, one of our radio, uh, hens, uh, is coming rent uh, radioed foxes is coming out of the field, literally with a duck egg in its mouth, walks right up to the truck. It's got the duck egg in its mouth, the radio collar around it. We're watching, we've got pictures of it, you know, and it goes, uh, they go off and they actually, uh, they actually bury the eggs because they, they're stashing them, but they don't bury them. They don't take, well, they'll take some of them back to the den to give to their pups and stuff like that. But they will actually take those eggs and they make a little mound and they bury the egg in there and they can still scent it, but they bury these and cache them in various places, sort of within their home range, relatively close to the den, stuff like that, because they don't want them just left out on the ground because then the crows will find them and the magpies yeah. and, and, the, and the jays and whatever else will find them. And so it's really interesting to study the individual behaviors. But, Jared, back to your point. So you just talk about red fox and then the abundance of raccoons and, and skunks out there on the landscape. Um, and between those three things, there is a lot of potential to reduce the overall productivity of uh, nesting pheasants uh, at the egg stage or the nest success stage. Hmm. Now, one of the things that is also interesting about this um, is that uh, when we built models, so, you know, being a population guy, I had to put all this, uh, you know, sort of data uh, that we had collected on, this is specific to pheasants, on, you know, all the pheasant population dynamics data. So when we do, were doing studies in north central Iowa uh, and then eventually built quantitative models about how population dynamics is influenced by predators and habitat and all the kinds of things that, you know, influence the survival uh, and the ultimate dynamics of a pheasant population over time. And so we put radios on hens. And uh, we, we surveyed roosters, although we didn't actually radio roosters. Roosters are the spacing mechanism. They're the guys that, you know, attract the hen. You know, you all know that. They, that's what spaces the, the pheasants out on the landscape because the roosters are defending small harems of, of hens. And then the hens find nesting habitat within the roosters kind of crowing territory, right? So they space them out. But we put radios mm -hmm. on, on, on hens in really good quality habitat where there's lots of, of habitat uh, in the landscape. You know, these were township size areas. So we radioed 50 and we did this for seven years. So we have a lot of data. Um, and then, uh, and then uh, on places in North central Iowa was really intensive row crop agriculture, corn and soybeans and remnant, you know, bits of habitat and a few CRP blocks here and there back in the, this was all done way back in the, must have been the 70s and 80s. Anyway, 80s, I guess. Um, 
And then we also captured chicks. So we had radios on the hens and we could monitor their nests. And, and when the hens would start to move on and off the nest, so they sit like, you know, they're unbelievably good at, at staying on the nest. They're very, once, once they get about half to two thirds of the way, uh, you know, through incubation, it takes a charge of dynamite to get them off of, <laughs> of them. Literally, you, can walk up, you can walk up to your, to one of our radioed hens and stand literally, you know, five feet away and she wouldn't move. Now think yeah. about how important that is as a, as a predator avoidance strategy, right? So if the predator isn't scenting her and is in the wrong side, you know, upwind instead of downwind, uh, they may walk right by. And certainly a raccoon might walk right by and never know, right? So it's a different kind of a story. And though, But once we would, when the hand starts, when the chicks start to, eggs start to pip and the chicks are hatching, the hand would get a little nervous and she'd start to be moving around the nest and stuff like that. Of course, we monitored the hens on our radios so we could see when she was getting, and of course, we candled the eggs so we, we knew about when she was going to hatch. And then we would go camp on one of these nests. And when she would hatch those, and, and the, of course, the chicks are born so they can, or hatch so that they can kind of move around. And they would move around a little bit in the grass. So we give her like less than 24 hours and we go back there then. And then we actually had a tape recorder um, and we would go out there and get as close to the hen as we could with our, and she's running around in the grass with her, with her little, you know, uh, day old chicks. And then we would literally find a place in the grass. We'd open up some spots and we put the tape recorder right in the middle of that little open spot and play the chick assembly calls, the call that she calls to get them to come back. And the little chicks would run right out of the grass and stand on the damn tape recorder. <laughs> and, and then we would, we would just reach up one, two, three, you know, and just grab, you know, we put three radios on each of the three of these little guys. We had, we had um, radios that were implanted beneath the skin between the basically their wings in the back, about the size of an aspirin. Uh, they lasted about two months. Uh, each and and we actually did it surgically and they had a little antenna. So people have seen these talks and I've given these talks. They look like little radio controlled, uh, you know, uh, pheasants, uh, you know, with their little antenna sticking out of their skin. And then we would call the hen back with the, you know, the call and and uh, let the chicks go back with with mom. You know, we did the surgery at back at the lab. We come back out. We take them right back to the spot. Let them go. And then we just watch what would happen to the chicks. And we found all kinds of things, including cases where the 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 chicks joined another brood. So we had individual broods that would amalgamate with others. And if the hen was killed, sometimes, you know, female number one would end up with uh, female number two. Some of her chicks, if the if the female, uh, you know, uh, got killed or something like that, sometimes they get hit on the road or some other kind of thing or caught by a predator. Now, the point of this is he, Jared was talking about talking to people about the other predators. Well, the, when we built models, the very number one factor that influences the dynamics annually of the pheasant population, the rate of growth, the rate of change of the population is most sensitive to, is most influenced by survival during brood. So right after they hatch and for about the first two to three to four weeks, 
before they really begin to fly at all, you know, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, that's when the uh, that is the most sensitive time for influence, the ultimate change in the population from one year to the next. And you know what kills them during that time? It isn't foxes. It isn't coyotes. It isn't raccoons. It isn't skunks. It's weasels. Huh. Really? Little tiny thing that nobody and mink, you know, people don't think of it. But I've been out in the middle of well, we had this happen and found mink dens in rock piles out in the middle of, you know, the edge of somebody's CRP um, where, uh, you know, the mink says, I mean, I don't really necessarily have to hunt in water. You know, everybody thinks of them as being along the edges of water and stuff like that. You know, they're just, you know, fancy weasels, uh, you know, uh, a little bigger. <laughs> uh, but, but, but basically they forage in all kinds of habitat looking for all kinds of things. And, and, um, they, uh, they stockpile them, especially weasels, short tailed and long tailed weasels. And they have a widespread distribution in the pheasant landscapes of North America. And they are in the grass hunting mice and anything else that moves. And huh. if you think about, here's a, a brood. Okay. So a weasel gets into a brood and they find a brood with a mom and one of the things that's characteristic of weasel predation is weasels are famous for what is called surplus killing. So that when they find a stash of prey, a brood of, of pheasant chicks, bang, they just go in there and they'll grab every one of them is that they can. So one of my very favorite stories to tell when I give these talks is, uh, in fact, actually a former uh, uh, employee of, uh, uh, of, um, Fence forever, Pete Berthelson. This is Pete's favorite story. He, 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 Pete, when I would give these talks, Pete would always say, Oh, Bill, you got to tell the weasel story. <laughs> so the weasel, the weasel story is we had radios on these chicks in a brood uh, that went dead because they had a mortality signal. And uh, we found, tracked down where the mortality signal radios were coming from, and we found them in one of these uh, sort of rock piles. And so the grad student and uh, the techs were out there digging away down in there to try to recover these chicks to see if they could figure out what had killed them. They got about halfway down in this, I mean, you know, it was a terrible job. It's a hot, you know, spring day and, and uh, you know, summer in June or whenever these uh, young chicks had been killed by, uh, and about, they're halfway down to the bottom of this thing and just comes boiling out, practically ran up the sleeve of one of the, of the Texas, a weasel, just leaped out of that, <laughs> den, just bailed out of there. And we got down to the bottom and there were three of our radio chicks that were all from the same brood and about six or seven other chicks. Huh. Oh, so, so there's, the, there's, yep. there's the real science that says, yeah. So here's, not only did it, and you know that this weasel didn't just go back to somehow find this brood all the time. This weasel got into that, uh, into that brood and whacked all three of our radio chicks and anybody else who was close by. And there was about 10 of those guys. Now, the problem is with all this predator control stuff. Okay. So how many of, of us are out there thinking, oh man, we got to control weasels. We got to control mink. We got to control, I don't know, I can't even think of what else we should add to the list. You, you don't have to probably control opossums. They they really don't 
hunt in the kind of dense habitat, stuff like that. You don't worry about that. But the point is that there's this whole suite of predators. We think of coyotes sort of being the top dog. Back in the day, we had wolves. And uh, probably, you know, the whole predator-prey system in North America was very different when we had wolves and coyotes and, and uh, you know, there's been these big picture changes in our landscapes and stuff. It's pretty suitable for coyotes and there's lots of them around. And it's not so suitable for some of these other predators, but there's many, many other things out there that, you know, that kill pheasants at various stages along the way, uh, you know. So, so I want to ask about two other types of predators that we haven't touched on yet. Okay. And I want to go, I want to go to the sky in a minute. Right. But, but first, you know, another predator, not necessarily a natural predator that a lot of people focus on are ditch divers, right? Feral cats. Right. Uh, Right. What's their impact on, on pheasants and pheasant nests and pheasant chicks? So maybe, you know, tackling a hen pheasant in the road ditch right in front of the house, but they're not wandering all over heck, uh, you know, out there in the landscape for the most part. So I don't think they're a big influence on pheasants. They are really bad uh, and their effect on passerines. And remember, cats are the most uh, carnivorous of the carnivores. So bobcats almost hardly ever eat carrion. They, They will, but for the most part, they kill live prey. And like the other, you know, predators, they're mostly focused on, you know, rabbits and squirrels and mice and things like that. And they do catch birds and do kill. You know, I get asked all the time, do they kill pheasants? Yeah, they're, they're hard. they don't really hunt big grassland patches where you might find pheasant chicks. They do kill turkey poults. But, you know, we did actually studies of, of bobcats and found, you know, very little evidence of, uh, of birds in their uh, in their diet. Feral cats uh, probably are not. It's not something I would be you know, worried about a big impact. Um, and then, uh, you know, we haven't touched on raptors. You were going to ask, uh, so that, so, so one of the things I was going to say, uh, we were talking about these pheasant dynamics models and stuff. The second most influential life history period, um, is winter survival of hens and, um, raptors are most important in the winter. There's not a lot of data, um, it's a hard thing to study, um, but for the most part, um, it's not uh, common for raptors to kill hen pheasants during the nesting season or the brood season or whatever. Um, uh, crows probably catch broods out on the edges of the grass or things like that occasionally and things like that. Uh, maybe accipiters, uh, you know, the ones that are actually bird predators, but most of the bootios, I mean, the most common uh, raptor is uh, uh, red-tailed hawks, and mm-hmm. they're hunting mice. You know, they're hunting mice and rabbits and things like that, and great horned owls. So great horned owls in the farm grove in the winter, they probably catch, uh, you know, hens, but they're not really um, a big influence on the population. The, the, the thing that kills pheasant hens during the winter is either really harsh winter conditions, so those really bad conditions that basically freeze hens to death and so on. That We had winter survival in our pheasant studies ranged from, as people were flabbergasted, we had 50 radios out there in these study areas, 
and uh, the bad habitat did worse. That is the bad landscape did much worse than the good landscape, not surprisingly. But even on the good landscape, the variance in winter survival, some years, 48 out of 50, like 95% survival of uh, hens survived all the way through the winter. So we put a radio on them in the fall and they survived all the way until spring nesting, right? And then in other years, it was like 12%. So really severe winters. Really? And the worst, the worst thing was when you have uh, long periods of snow on the ground and um, uh, and uh, deep, relatively deeper snow, uh, yeah, those, those two periods. It's, it's actually the length of time that snow is on the ground because it restricts the, the, the hens uh, and, for that matter, the roosters, but the hens to small patches of habitat and predators can focus in on those kinds of things. But it's also true that they're, they're usually, this is one of those places where habitat really and food plots and stuff like that, secure cover really comes into play because the hens don't want to have to go very far. They, they're they much smaller in body size. They lose more weight over the winter um, than, the, than the roosters. They're smaller than the roosters body size and hens don't survive as well. And they just run out of gas. By February, so to speak, uh, they're they're in relatively poor condition, and then you know they may be more susceptible to uh, you know a, a great horned owl or a fox uh, or a coyote or whatever uh, at that time glad, of the year. It's it's interesting. I'm glad you I'm glad you hit on that because we've talked about another podcast where we're focusing on you know. Uh, winter habitat and broodering habitat where I've, I'm not sure if I learned it from you or I think it was from Todd Bogan shoots of the Iowa DNR uh, in a in a presentation that he did but that same thing and that w- winter is really measured in the amount of time for in it from a pheasant standpoint that they're they're spending on a white background because at that point at that point they're they're much easier to 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 find and, and see by by avian predators and then the second point I'll make is um, uh, two years ago, I went out, uh, to South Dakota, kind of central South Dakota with Nick Lowry, uh, who's a, a writer out there for the, for the Pier Capital Journal. And he had a red-tailed hawk at the time, um, that, uh, that he, that he used for hunting purposes. And it's, it was very interesting to, to go with him and see is that number one, most of those red tails, you know, they're, they're more, they, they sit, sit and watch and, you know, wait for a, wait for a bunny and a rabbit or a rodent to come out. They're not going to expend a ton of energy chasing a chasing a bird that they they probably can't catch up to uh, to begin with. And then you look at the you look at the different birds of prey out there uh, that that people people use when they have hawks, and you look at the talon sizes on them, and and they're they're made for smaller mammals. They're not you know they're not they're not made to take a rooster pheasant uh, out of the air. But he's he's got a jeer falcon now, so I, I'd like to go back and and test that theory with with a different bird. Yeah. So if you think about the, the raptors, uh, generally, uh, falcons, uh, hunt birds, smaller birds and ducks, they're called duck hawks, you know, but they don't grab them in the air. They punch them and they knock them yep. to the ground and then they go kill them. And, uh, and the other group of course is, uh, you know, red tails are beauties and they're soaring hawks and, you know, they, they perch and then they dive down and grab a mouse or whatever. Uh, but the other ones that hunt actively hunt birds, um, are the occipiters, uh, uh, you know, Cooper's hawks and sharpshin hawks and goshawks. Well, if you're a grouse hunter, you should be worried about Cooper's hawks and, uh, 
and uh, goshawks especially, right? Goshawks are big enough, and they kill, uh, you know, that's what they do. They chase, although they're mostly chasing smaller birds, they are built to catch birds, you know, and they don't catch nearly as many mammals. Beautios and the ones you commonly see out there on the landscape are the ones that are hunting mice and rabbits and things like that. So again, raptors are sort of a specialized predator, Bob. They go after, you know, there are certain conditions under which they might be important. Great horned owls would be, in my opinion, the raptor that you kind of have to think about as being the most influential among raptors. But in terms of the studies of pheasants, there's been a handful of studies and most of them are, and they're relatively old uh, studies, and most of them show relatively low impact of birds of prey uh, on pheasants. And the other thing to remember is that all the birds of prey, uh, all migratory birds are federally federally yeah. and state protected. So right. even if you thought, okay, well, you can go out and shoot coyotes to your heart's content, but yeah. you can't do that with hawks. Not right. It's a new point. Yeah. So yeah. the last predator before we talk about habitat is humans, yeah. right? Yeah. And we often, you know, Jared and I feel these calls when population forecasts are down, you know, the, the people come out of the woodworks, well, we should close hunting season down for a period of years. Right. But the reality, and help me with the statistics, but because hunters specifically in a pheasant scenario or shooting roosters only. Um, isn't it something like a, we can take in the neighborhood of 90 roosters, 90 males out of a population and still the next year would be maintained at a level uh, similar to the year prior because it's really the hens that influence the fluctuations in a pheasant population. Is it something along those lines? Percentage yeah. Wise, yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. So pheasants are, are, you know, uh, polygynous. So males breed many females, the actual sex ratios in the field, uh, in heavily hunted populations, you know, uh, you might see, uh, uh, well, the average sort of harem of a, of a rooster is, uh, uh, about one to four in the field. Okay. Uh, in natural populations. In captivity and game farms, uh, you know, one rooster services uh, 30 hens. So, you know, it's not a problem. Shoot as many roosters as you want. You're never going to run out of roosters. And as long as your, uh, you know, a population of hens is, uh, you know, su sustaining. Uh, a re and remember, when they hatch the eggs, it's 50-50. Okay, so we're pretty close to half roosters. Yeah, that come out of the eggs and half hens that come out of the eggs. So it's maintaining the hen population that's uh, the most important. And there's never going to be a, a shortage of roosters, even in, in relatively poor habitat. Um, you can shoot a really large proportion. In fact, you probably can't shoot. Uh, you can't really influence the sex ratio to get it even close to what a game farm would be like. Not even close. I mean, you know, in natural populations, you just can't get there. Um, but a lot of, I did. a lot of people, oops, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. A lot of, a lot of people, inter, um, a lot of people understand too, or maybe don't understand that, you know, 80, 80% of the roosters that you shoot in any given season were, were, were produced that same year in the spring. Isn't that correct, Dr. Clark? It, it is absolutely. In fact, um, that's actually true 
in, in the dynamics of the hen population. So pheasants are built for speed. They, uh, you know, I say this uh, kind of, they are, they don't live very long under any kinds of circumstances, predators, not predators, whatever they, they, so a, a hen pheasant is hatched right around now. That's it. So they're starting to run around in the grass. Here we are on the fourth right of June. And right now is when broods are hitting the ground, right? And from now, remember what I said, they got to survive the brood series season. They got to survive their first winter. And then they come around next spring is their first and probably only chance in their entire lifetime. And you know what the survival rate of that first year is in total for those hens? Out of 100 hens, only about 15 are going to actually make it all the way, 15 to 20 maybe, are going to make it all the way to their first birthday and lay a nest. Hmm. 15 to 20% are actually going to nest once. And if they, we had radios on some individuals that we recaptured. If you make it to the second year, almost no females make it to the second year. Survival for all the way. So now you're a one-year-old hen. You're one of those 15 prize winners that laid a clutch and 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 managed to get eggs off and, and brood off. And then you survive all the way for another whole year. About 2% of that original 100, so one or two wow. females will ever get to nest a second time. That's going to be a hell of a birthday party. A second time. Pheasants do not live forever. And the big fallacy that I run into all the time with people thinking about predators and prey is that they believe that if you took away the predators, that the pheasants would, or any prey, would just live forever. But that's not the way nature works. Bunny rabbits and, and, and mice and so on are just cannon fodder. You know, they're just there to feed predators, so to speak. And they have, so pheasants have some really good adaptations for being built for speed. They don't live very long, so they better have a big clutch. The average clutch size is 11 or 12, so they have a big clutch. They are incredibly persistent re-nesters. So when they nest uh, the first time, if they lose a nest, um, they re-nest the second time. We had hens that re-nested, radioed hens, that re-nested four times. Now, the clutch size tends to go down over the uh, the course of the summer. Um, by midsummer, if they haven't had a clutch by late July, early August, ain't gonna, it ain't going to happen. Because literally, the rooster, which is surprising, the roosters lose interest, for, you know, is it, <laughs> it, which is kind of hard to imagine, you know. Uh, you know. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, they do. Uh, and 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 the and the but those hens are incredibly persistent. In the good landscapes that we worked on in northern Iowa, the average number of nesting attempts for a successful clutch of uh, on the good landscapes was a little over one. It was about 1.1, 1.2 on average, which means that some small proportion of females had to try twice, right, um, in order to get a clutch off. In the poor landscape, places where it was mostly row crop agriculture and a few patches of grass, uh, they had to try at least three times. So it was actually three and just over three times average number of att nesting attempts before they produced uh, uh, a clutch. But that's still remarkable because mm -hmm. even, and and as I said, they're really good at being faithful to their nest. They're good at taking broods into good habitat and helping broods survive. 
So they do an amazing job of being persistent. And as a result, the population gets replenished uh, each year by nesting hens. That doesn't happen in lots of other species. Uh, ducks are actually much uh, poorer at this. Um, average nest success in, you know, a CRP field someplace in wherever, you know, upper Midwest of pheasants is, uh, well, the break-even point's about 42%. Um, so 42% of the hens have to produce a clutch in order for the population to maintain a positive rate of increase. Um, uh, and the average on our study areas were, you know, it was a little lower on the bad places and a little higher uh, on the good the good landscapes, but was around that break-even point. Um, uh, uh, ducks in the same habitat, same fields, nesting pheasants, nesting ducks, the nest success could be, you know, 10% or less. Wow. And that's because ducks, move, they behave differently. They move on and off the nest uh, twice a day to go feed and stuff like that. The pheasants get in there. They the ducks also live longer. Their average mortality rates are about half to uh, no. I'm sorry. What am I trying to say? Pheasant pheasant annual mortality of a hen pheasant and a hen uh, mallard. Um, a hen mallard's uh, survival rate is about three times, three to four times uh, what a hen pheasant is. Fifteen percent versus about forty-five to fifty percent. So the hen, the hen mallard is going to be a less persistent nester because they know they're going to get another chance next year, relatively speaking. Whereas a hen pheasant better get it done this year because they ain't going to have another chance. Only a very small fraction do. So we started this conversation when you were talking about the age-old question of you got this pheasant population and what influences those populations? Is it the top-down? And we've gone through the layers of different predators, or is it the bottom up, the habitat, the food, the nesting cover? And clearly, we've been working our way towards this. Uh, so let's talk about the bottom up, the habitat component. You've already touched upon a little bit good landscapes, bad landscapes. Pull it all together for us, Dr. Clark. How, right. wh what? Is the secret recipe for better pheasant populations on a landscape? Well, clearly where we're headed, Bob, is to be talking about, you know, good habitat on the landscape and landscape level kinds of thinking uh, is important. But I think one of the best ways for uh, listeners to kind of appreciate this is to go back where you're talking about in terms of, and think about habitat pieces at each stage of the life history that I said. Brood survival is number one. Hen survival through the winter, in other words, all the way to their first nesting season, is number two in, in importance in sort of influencing dynamics. And number three is nest success, okay? So the first thing to think about is, okay, so when we think about what is good brood habitat and what is good uh, nesting habitat, because you can kind of combine those two uh, in many respects, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, we have a tendency to think that nest success is the most important one. And we sort of always start there. Um, but uh, it's always probably, I always think of it in terms of the composite of, of nesting. So it is true that when you think about nesting habitat, those big blocks of habitat uh, of, of undisturbed 
grassland, mixed forbs and stuff like that. It could be uh, restored prairie and stuff. Prairie, mixed prairie is not quite as good um, as really dense nesting cover because early nesting hens are looking for a lot of litter. And you realize that if you think about prairie habitat, especially diverse forbs and stuff like that, it's great for broods. It's awesome brood habitat. It's the best kind of brood habitat, but it doesn't have the kind of litter layer that the hen is looking for to snuggle down in, in early nesting uh, phase. So good, secure nesting habit, dense nesting cover on the ground and combine in combination with good brood habitat. And if you have large blocks, we actually calculated the break-even point. You mentioned Todd Bogenschutz and I, we uh, working together, Jared, Todd and I actually published a mm -hmm. paper on, on saying the, the break-even point in terms of meeting that sort of minimum next nest success for needing to kind of replace the population for next year is about 42%. And the, and the minimum size field that you need is about 40 acres. So below 40 acres, it's kind of hit and miss. Above 40 acres, you can be pretty sure that the average nest success is going to be high enough so that the population can be sustained. And when we talk about these large blocks of habitat relative to predators, it's always good to go back and think about how they search for whether you're talking about what's out there chasing after broods or what's out there, uh, you know, searching for hens and nests. It's easy to visualize, you know, kind of for hens and nests. So just think about that one for a second. So if you think about, you know, how a predator goes out there and looks in the landscape, you know, you're kind of thinking, okay, so there's some little patch of habitat out or maybe a little isolated wa grass waterway. And a fen, if that's the only thing a pheasant hen has to pick, that's where they're going to go. You know, they're going to nest in that grass waterway or a road ditch or whatever. But if this is some little patch of habitat out in the middle of nowhere, if you're a predator, you're not going to waste your, a, a fox, you know, you're not going to, or a coyote, you're not going to waste your time going out there and look for something to eat. It's just like you with your hunting dog. You know, you're like, yeah, okay, that little patch of grass out in the middle of that, you know, soybean field, nah, I'm not going to go and look at that little wet spot out there. It's probably nothing there, right? And then if you think about that, that same predator, that fox or the coyote and thinking, okay, I'm going to go out there and here's a quarter section of CRP and I'm going to go out there and wander through that whole blasted thing to go find a, a ground nesting bird or a mouse or whatever, you know, <laughs> I look for that and you're like, yeah, and it's going to be rank and stuff. I like to work along the edges and things like that. I'm not going into that big giant CRP field. I jokingly said to Jared that, you know, even hunters don't do that or maybe young, <laughs> do, you know, <laughs> where are you going to go? You're going to go to those medium sized patches, right? And that's what mm -hmm. the predators do. So the worst place to be on the landscape is some kind of attractive nesting habitat, like a patch of habitat that's kind of isolated, moderate size, you know, 15, 20 acres and stuff like that. It's going to attract hen pheasants in there to nest, right? It's, it's easily searched by the predators. It's easily searched by you and your dog. You know, even a 40-acre piece is pretty easy to search, you know, and, mm -hmm. and find, find the birds that are in there relatively easily. Um, and so those are, and especially if there's any kind of connecting links to other patches of habitat. So we actually did studies of this. This is what Aaron Keel worked on for his master's degree when, it, when he was working as a graduate student. And he was actually looking at how predators entered and, and exited fields and stuff like that using track 
counts and stuff like that. And he found just like, you know, you, you would naturally sort of follow connecting links into a block of habitat. If you're cutting across a field, you think about a, a fox, you know, it's not going to run to the side. It's going to go to the nearest point. It's going to go to those outside corners when it's looking to enter into a, so the more irregular patches are and things like that, the more likely that, because you create more edge, the more likely it is that predators are going to relatively efficiently search uh, in those things. So disturbed habitat, habitat with lots of edges, uh, those kind of small linear habitats, those are relatively more easily searched or more readily, or you could say just the data show nest success in those kinds of habitats is going to be lower than those big square blocks of, of CRP. I mean, so in general, what, do you, what do you say, what do you say to the person then? So like in a state like Iowa or elsewhere where, um, you know, we, we like to, people like to put in buffers and it's protecting right. water quality and it's doing, doing right. good things for wildlife. I think the statistic of I, I've seen is that for every foot over 50 feet, uh, and that's considered linear habitat, right? For a buffer, right? For for, right. for every foot over fifty feet, nesting success increases one percent. Correct. Uh, I don't remember the exact statistics, but I do have some uh, modeling stuff that we did on on linear habitats, buffers versus uh, uh, blocks of CRP. Uh, uh, but wider is so better. I have, I have a quick, yeah, wider is better for sure. And, uh, but, but also just CRP, big blocks of CRP versus the same amount of acres in linear habitat. So I'll get to that in a second. But I, I'll answer your first question first, Jared. So I, I, have, a, I have a ready answer for uh, the, the farmer or the landowner or the sportsman's club who says, you know, man, we got to do something for habitat. And, uh, you know, is ready to throw up their hands and say, yeah, but, you know, this guy Clark or, you know, these Pheasants Forever guys say, yeah, but these linear habitats are easily searched by predators. And I always respond by saying this. Yeah, but we know that uh, those little ha patches of habitat are way better pheasant habitat than corn and soybeans. So there's your answer. It's it, it may not be as good as perfect, but it is way better than corn and soybeans. So something's not, better than nothing. Absolutely. Go for it. You know, that's right. Now we actually, cause we were very interested in this whole business of linearity and stuff. So we took our models, our pheasant models, and we actually simulated Todd and I did this again. And there's actually a, 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 a uh, let's see, I guess it's an NRCS uh, little pamphlet out there. Uh, you could probably find uh, the link somewhere on NRCS's website where we actually simulated the effects of, okay, let's take a landscape in different places in Iowa. We'll take a place like Power Sheet County, which is a pretty good and diverse, you know, landscape. And then back in the day, there was pretty good pheasant populations there. We'll take some pretty bleak habitat up in North Central Iowa in places like Kasuth County and somewhere where there's really mostly just, you know, linear habitats and stuff like that, and a little bit of perennial habitat. And we'll take some Southern Iowa habitat. Well, anyway, just just simply simplify it down to a couple, contrast a couple places. So, so first thing we did was we, we looked at the real landscapes and then we said, let's take all the government program land out altogether. That is no CRP of any kind. Okay. And then we look and, and then we did 
what the landscape was producing in terms of rates of growth of the population, just as the landscape stood. And then we said, okay, let's take a certain amount of CRP and put it in big blocks. And then we did the same amount of CRP in uh, linear habitats. And at the time we were evaluating sort of the buffer initiative. So we were not doing uh, like strips or other kinds of habitat. We were putting it all along what was the legal definition and we simulated different widths. We, we obviously wider was better. So we went with hundred foot, but what we did was we went different proportions of landowner participation. So we actually said, what would the landscape look like if you had a hundred percent participation by all landowners in a buffer kind of program or say only 25% of the landowners. And, uh, and so we had sort of different uh, scenarios. So here's what happened. When you do that and you apply our models and stuff like that, remember what I said about edges and the way that the more edge there is, big blocks are going to be better. And not surprisingly, the biggest increase, the biggest bang for your CRP buck was on big blocks of CRP. So above and beyond the landscape by itself, um, you got a 12% bump in the rate of increase of the population with big blocks of CRP. 12% more rate of increase in the population, okay? So that meant that your population would go from, uh, you know, a rate of increase of, you know, something like uh, uh, about 8 to 9% a year, you'd add 2 or 3% on top of that. Um, uh, to the rate of increase. I mean, you'd have pheasants coming out of your ears if you could just put lots of, of you know, big blocks of CRP. When we did the like same the thing, when we did the same thing uh, with uh, CRP in buffers, um, it was really an interesting thing uh, that uh, we got an increase, um, but we did over sort of no, you know, habitat kinds of conditions or a break even point. Uh, but it was about half what you would get with, uh, you know, the CRP in blocks. So in other words, you get about five or 6% bump in improvement in your habitat. But, but here's the other part of this that's really interesting. Two things that are really important. It was really landscape uh, specific. So if you put habitat in north central Iowa where there is no habitat, you actually get a bigger bang for your buck in places where there's no habitat at all than you do if there's already habitat. So it actually turns out that the marginal increase is greater where the habitats are poor. So that's the other hmm. thing to tell your landowner friends up in those places where they're thinking, man, we're, we're just, you know, not going to make any headway here if, if we, you know, put in habitat. Well, if you put in blocks of habitat where there is no blocks of habitat, you will, you will get pheasants. You will have pheasants in places where you're like, and you know that you have friends that live in places in Southern Minnesota and you can go hunt. And if the guy is a person who says, you know, I like growing corn and soybeans, but I really like hunting pheasants. And so I'm going to participate in every dang program I can. You can find places in those landscapes where, you know, somebody has a, a pretty good chunk of habitat on their landscape. And guess what? There's pheasants there. Good pheasants. Yeah. Good, good hunting. You know, and you're like, how can that be? You know, well, that's how it can be. Now, the other interesting and curious thing is that if you put 
buffers on 100% of the landscape, you create so much edge that it actually isn't as good as if you're sort of in that moderate 25 to 30% participation. So that's another positive thing you could say to say, or at least a trade-off thing. It, it yeah. is true that you gain population stability um, in, in, in any kind of a situation where you put habitat uh, on the ground, whether it's in buffers and linear habitats or preferably in combinations with larger blocks of habitat, whether those are WMAs and that kind of stuff and, and land acquisitions or whether they're in CRP. Obviously, if it were up to me, I would say, you know, we can't have enough CRP. It would help the farm economy and it would help all kinds of wildlife, including all kinds of wildlife that we haven't even talked about, pollinators yeah. and loads of things. And for that you matter, know, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you, you talked about kind of the three vulnerable times or most important critical times for pheasant populations. Number one being brood time. And, you know, we, we've spent a number of podcasts talking about pollinator habitat and the importance of pollinator habitat for pheasant and quail broods. Uh, right. Number, right. number three, I'm going to jump over number two, because I'm going to come back to that. Number three, nesting season. And, you right. know, for right. the entirety of Pheasants Forever's history, we've talked about the importance of nesting cover because it is the single um, fastest decreasing type of habitat right. on the land, right? right? We're losing our prairies, we're losing our grasslands, and nesting cover is what we really need to add back to the landscape to create birds. But the number two, which is hen survival through the winter, we we talk around that one, in my view. We don't talk about that one as specifically as much. And when I think about it, it's like, you know, it's like I hit myself in the head. And it's like, this is the reason that we really talk about thermal cover and adjacent to food plots and right, right. the marriage of, you know, dense thermal cover like cattails and how you place your food, whether that's a sorghum or a corn or whatever your food plot is, but the, that piece in those elements together is really critical to get those hens through the winter, no matter what kind of winter it is, because it's setting that 20% up, right? The 15 to 20% you talked about of those hens to get the highest percentage of those hens to the nesting season in the best shape possible so they can lay down 11 or 13 eggs and then all the other percentages start to raise it. That inaccurate yeah, yeah. assessment? Yeah, so so I kind of I kind of alluded to that when we were talking about it earlier, Bob, and I said that basically repeated what you just said uh, in that regard. Um, and, and, and it's if you think about what I said about the variation in winter survival and winter severity, uh, you know, the, the times that those hens really need that thermal cover are in those windy, cold winters. And you're not going to get those in a lot of the pheasant range, you know. Um, uh, you know, if you once you get out of the northern Great Plains, uh, you know, you go, uh, I mean, there's a lot of pheasants in California. 
you know, or if you go east, you know, in the Corn Belt, uh, you know, they're not going to have anywhere near as severe. But the point is that if you think about South Dakota, North Dakota, even northern Iowa, southern Minnesota and stuff like that, that thermal cover is particularly important in those years when, you know, the survival might only be 11 percent. And it's it's snow and blowing snow that's really important and protection. Now, most years um, we don't uh, and this is, we haven't talked about climate change, but some of this is sort of shifting. Um, so we could talk for a long time about sort of even the bigger, longer term picture kinds of things that are happening. But nonetheless, the point I get into is that if you if you kind of think about, you know, those years when there's a lot of snow, uh, they're not there's some years when there's not very much snow and winter survival is great. Pheasants rarely run out of food in the winter. Um, so just sort of not making sure that they have food by planting a food plot is not the reason to plant a food plot. In fact, if I were thinking about what I would do with my habitat dollars, I might be thinking about sort of secure winter cover in the way of, um, but it is definitely true. And I agree completely with your statement that if you're going to plant food plots for food, you want to make sure that they're near that winter thermal cover. Because in those winters, when it is cold and snowy, instead of that hen having to forage further out into an open field and be more exposed to predators or just the elements, you know, being out there in the cold, you know, I mean, I've seen hen pheasants, roosters too, you know, crater down into two feet of snow uh, to get to food in the open, but that's got to be tough on their physiology. They just, mm. uh, they're not going to do very well under those kinds of conditions. But in lots of years when, uh, uh, when we have, um, uh, waste grain on the fields and so on, corn and soybeans and, and available, they're going to have plenty of food. Now, one of the things that we haven't mentioned is that, you know, there are other subtle effects of agriculture that also play into this habitat. And that brings to my mind, just thinking about Roundup Ready crops and things like that and waste grain and efficiency of harvesting. Back in the day, there was a lot more waste corn on the ground then there, you know, back in the 50s and well, corn pickers in the 50s and 60s. Um, and then we had, you know, modern combines and Roundup Ready crops and stuff that's much more shatterproof. And now, man, there is nowhere near as much food out there on the ground uh, as they're in clean farmed kinds of situations. And if you think about brood habitat, brood habitat back in the day, we had we had oodles of pheasants that were nesting in 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 oats and bromin alfalfa and then their brood habitat was just the weedy edges of field that and weedy fields themselves and the broods were running around there in those weedy fields now it's clean as a whistle and mm. there is no brood habitat to be found except if we put it out there on the landscape i mean for the most part you know and, and that really kind of so that th this is one of those places where you start thinking about the diversity of landscape and pulling all this stuff together. And then you start to say, if you are thinking about mitigating predators at all these different life history stages, well, I mean, I know how to build pheasant habitat. Give me some money and I'll build you a pheasant habitat that'll produce pheasants year after year with very little change in, in a relative abundance. And you'll shoot, you know, off your 300 acres, you'll shoot, you know, 60, 70 roosters pretty much regularly. 
I mean, you could get whacked by a bad winter or a cold, wet spring and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But you can do it. But you're now thinking about, OK, I got to have, you know, some secure nesting habitat and some brood habitat all figured out together. I got to have good habitat links that that the birds can move around in. I got to have, uh, you know, winter cover that in, that's going to be secure in those in those severe winters. And uh, and I probably uh, am going to. Uh, be able to have very con relatively consistent, uh, you know, uh, populations. One of the things that's kind of the most interesting about our north central Iowa pheasant uh, 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 population studies and all the modeling we did was on the poor landscapes where there was just, there were some blocks of CRP, but there were mostly linear habitats and stuff like that. It was only in about one out of every 10 years that the population actually broke even and slightly increased. In, um, in the good landscape, the diverse landscape, it was nine out of 10 years. Hmm. So your, your pheasant populations are still exist in, you know, you can go to southern Minnesota or northern Iowa or, or intensively farmed places in almost any state anywhere. And find that pheasants still persist in those landscapes, uh, even natural reproducing populations, um, when there's only a couple percent, three, four, five percent of the landscape in perennial habitat. Um, so it has very little to do, you ultimately, with how many coyotes there are on the ground in my in my region, in my my part of North Central Iowa here where I live. Um, and it has mostly to do with the fact that you know we're in corn and soybean production landscape and there's little bits of habitat here and there. And by golly, the roosters find them and the hens find the roosters and they still hang on despite our best efforts to not make them hang on <laughs> by removing all the habitat, you know? Yeah, that, that's a wonderful job of bringing us completely full circle here and, uh, you know, kind of explaining layer by layer, all the predators, and then bringing in the habitat component. You, you teased it, and I'm, I, I'm interested, before I ask for your closing thoughts, you teased climate change. Oh, um, yeah. You know, what, what is the role that climate change is having on pheasant populations and the future projections that you see um, for pheasants on the landscape? So in general terms, if you talk about the Corn Belt, um, we're getting more variable weather. Uh, uh, so here in Iowa, for example, we're getting more severe storms and stuff like that, which means that that means we're going to get bigger storms and more violent storms and more rainfall in the spring. And we're getting uh, winters that uh, tend to do the same sort of thing. So it's the amount of variability um, and the whole sort of system. If you think about where where the pheasant range sort of peters out, pheasants don't do very, you go very far south of, of Iowa into northern Missouri and stuff like that. And you're now pretty much, you're in quail range, but you're pretty much almost out of the pheasant range, you know, and you, I mean, you can make pheasants survive in those kinds of landscapes. The whole system is kind of moving north and west. So it is actually getting to be more um, consistent weather for production and stuff like that in the Dakotas for production of, of crops and stuff like that. The Corn Belt is going to move and we're going to have, uh, you know, habitat 
that is, we're going to have agriculture in, well, they're already growing corn and soybeans in southern Manitoba and places like that. Mm -hmm. So the climate change is sort of causing greater amounts of variability and is shifting sort of the center of the best conditions for pheasants um, in the direction of uh, the, 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 you could say it's, it's making the likelihood that that habitat is going to be degraded in places like South Dakota right now, where we think of as the gold standard for pheasants, um, more suitable for agricultural practices that are going to degrade pheasant habitat. So we're losing, and our agricultural policies play right into this, you know, because of the fact that we uh, supplement the production of of corn and, and soybeans very readily. So lots of those things are moving. Small grains have disappeared from lots of Eastern uh, North Dakota, Eastern South Dakota. We're planting corn and soybeans in those places and duck nesting habitat is gone because there's not as much CRP. Uh, the, the small grains that were used by pheasants and, and nesting uh, other upland nesting birds is disappearing and we're replacing that. So climate change is making the degradation of habitat move into those places that right now are pretty favorable uh, for, uh, you know, pheasants. Uh, right now, for example, if you compare the relative variability in the springtime uh, of, of weather here in Iowa compared to, say, North, you know, Aberdeen, South Dakota or something like that, it's much more consistently good for pheasants in places like South Dakota than it is in places like Iowa because we're getting more variable stuff. You know, hmm. so, so even climate change, I mean, it's important to think, you know, I said at the outset, I can't think about one thing at a time. And so my brain is always going, whoa, you know, so now we have on top of all this stuff, we have these big long term changes that are occurring in in the landscape. Big long. That's a result of agriculture and our own activities. Big long term changes that are occurring in uh, uh, climate and and all these things influence whatever species of wildlife, whether it's the collection of predators or the pheasants or the upland other upland nesting birds, quail populations. And we could have a long discussion, although I'm not the guy to do it. But, you know, you could think about how all the landscapes in the southeastern United States have changed. And, you know, we have whole initiatives saying, why have quail, you know, disappeared. Well, it's really not a big mystery in, in many respects. When quail populations were booming, we had lots of old abandoned farms and lots of weedy habitat, and there were lots of quail, and now we don't. We have taken up a ton of your time, but it has been... <laughs> we, we definitely have done that. <laughs> but it has been fascinating. Um, as we move to closing thoughts, I'll, I'll look to Jared first. Uh, I mean, we have covered so much ground, you know, from coyotes to fox to raptors and the interrelation of all of them. Um, final thought or final question, Jared? I think I think it kind of points to the fact that you you can't do just one thing. Um, you know, whether whether you're going to go out and, and hunt predators and think that's, you know, ki let's focus on coyotes as, you know, the public enemy number one and, and think that's going to have a, have a huge impact versus, uh, you know, maybe trying to do some trapping, but, um, those other, other, other predators are going to move up and down. Um, there's, there's just a lot of variation there. And I, I think the, the important thing is that it, it all comes back to habitat 
And if we, if we get habitat and weather working together, um, we can create some good things. And, and uh, you know, your recommendation, Dr. Clark, for making sure we have block habitat where possible, but just, just making sure there's any habitat where possible. And I think that's where Pheasants Forever, our, our chapters, our farm bill biologists, our precision egg programs, We've got a lot of great things happening right now in a lot of different areas of the country. And I think it's going to pay off. And, you know, one thing we didn't touch on is you, you look at, you look at CRP over the course of its life. And, uh, you know, we, we sort of ended with South Dakota here and, and I'll, I'll go back to that. If, if you look at pheasant populations in that state, um, there, there is a direct correlation with the amount of grassland habitat on the landscape, specifically CRP. Um, it's, it's easy to see. And if anybody ever wants to see it, I'm, I'm happy to, I've got the graph of it, uh, saved on my computer just for that purpose. But, um, in any, in any of these places, uh, when we add grassland habitat and in a lot of cases, undisturbed nesting, dense nesting habitat, um, you know, good things happen, not just for pheasants, uh, not just for pollinators and not just for predators, but the, the, the whole web of life. So I, I think that's, uh, I think that's uh, how we're going to endure, endure into the future here uh, with uh, habitat and wildlife working to, together in sync. And um, I'm, I'm really happy that you were able to find time to come on and kind of explain some of those intricacies uh, of that of that web of life and, and what that mosaic of habitat looks like that's sustaining all of it. You know, I, I'll say a couple of different things in response, uh, Jared. Uh, I'll go back to uh, Pete Berthelson's favorite story about uh, uh, the predators. And and Pete would always say, after I'd tell the story about the weasel, uh, you know, Kent uh, and all those chicks, he, and, and then the just he asking, a, asking a follow-up story, uh, you know, uh, Pete would say, well, yeah, but Bill, I just get such a warm, fuzzy feeling when I go out there and I shoot a coyote or I shoot a fox or I trap a raccoon. And I said to him, knock yourself out. I said, it's great fun. Trapping is a great, you know, a way to learn about the, all the animals and stuff like that. So there's nothing wrong with predator control. But bottom line is, it's 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 not where you should put your time and effort. So the other thing I would always say, because Jared, you know, I've talked many times to mm. you know the, the national convention, pheasant fest, and stuff like that. And guys would literally the the chapter members would raise their hand almost out of frustration and say. You know, but you're telling us that, you know, we can't get there from here. You know, we want, you know, and I'd say, don't ever think that what you do as a chapter or on the local level, or as I said earlier in our discussion, that it's not worth putting habitat out there if it's a little patch and whatever. Because if everybody did it, and if they thought holistically about all these little pieces, if everybody did it, um, or if USDA would dump in even more money if Congress would say, this is really important. We can have very diverse landscapes. We can have agricultural productivity. In fact, probably more efficient agricultural productivity because we're not going to be farming every square inch, you know, and lose. And we can have soil that is going to last forever. And we're going to yep. have water quality. All those things put together. If we thought about that, you, you'd have plenty of places to go hunt pheasants or sharp tails or quail or whatever, but it takes, it takes, it takes a big kind of uh, policy and a big commitment 
Uh, and, you know, Pheasants Forever's in there fighting for it, just like other land agencies and Fed Ducks Unlimited doing their part and other kinds of cooperators, interest in pollinators, all these sorts of things. You know, uh, those are important aspects. And every one of the things that we do collective or individually combined. So the chapters can't lose faith that they their dollars are spent uh, and they're just wasting them. No, that's not true. They are. It's like that little boy with the, you know, his finger in the dam. You know, think about how bad it could get. We can. Yep. We don't and, want and, it. And we don't want it to go that way any further that way. We want to go back the other way. And landowners too. It's like if, if you right. want to do something, we're right. we're here to help you, and we're doing yep. the most efficient Absolutely. way possible. That's yep. that's productive and profitable um, for agriculture. So that's 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 good good uh, right. advice. Right, Doctor Clark. I we can't thank you enough for spending two hours of. I had a great time. Uh, I enjoy talking about this stuff, and uh, I'm always glad to be there for you guys. Well, it's fascinating. And, you know, on behalf of the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever uh, biologist tree that you have helped uh, create, uh, thank you so much for all you've done over your career. Um, I mean, your influence is felt every single day on the landscape through our biologists and our team. Uh, thank well, you I'm so much. I'm glad that's true. It's I'm a glad that's true. All right, folks, uh, I hope you have enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. It has been, without question, one of our best, most informative and, and entertaining conversations. Just just think about that skunk on its uh, back, rubbing its belly. <laughs> that's right. You don't need a, you get, that's the best visual I can give you for creating more habitat out there. We don't need any more happy skunks on the landscape. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, folks, hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, please uh, join, renew, uh, become a member of Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever. Make a donation. Get involved with a chapter. Uh, we need you in any way that you can share your time, your talent, or your treasure with our organization. We need you. The birds need you. Habitat needs you. I'm Bob St. Pierre signing off, saying always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks for listening. <laughs>